Okay, this week is Parshas Shoftim. Shoftim means judges. And uh, we're, we're told, first thing, and one of the main themes of the Parsha, is the enactment of judicial courts, a judicial system, once the Jews get to Israel. And we're at that stage in Deuteronomy, where Moshe spent, you know, four or so sections castigating, criticizing, giving Musr, giving uh, rebuke to the nation to prepare them for the grave challenges facing them. And last week and this week, and of course next week and the following, the four parshas in the middle of Deuteronomy are packed with laws, with mitzvahs. Some of them we've seen prior, most we haven't. And the theme of these mitzvahs are, these are uh, mitzvahs that aren't so relevant to the nation when they're in the desert, when they're in the wilderness, when they don't have a kind of a, a land and stability and hegemony. And they're also living in a supernatural way. They have Moshe and they have these magical clouds. They have all these uh, ordinances that uh, allow life to be kind of sublime. Once they get to Israel, all that's going to be removed. Moshe's going to die beforehand and they're going to have to try to integrate into regular, ordinary life. And there's many mitzvos that they're told that are necessary for them uh, in order to have this be a success. So this part we're going to see uh, primarily about uh, various uh, judicial laws, but also about war, the war that they have to engage with the inhabitants of the land, amongst many other laws as well. So it begins with Shoftim v'shotrim titan which means you should establish uh, judges and enforcers in all your cities and all your gates that the Almighty is giving, giving you for your tribes, and they should judge the nation with righteous judgment. So the first thing we're told is that you get to Israel, you have to establish a network of courts. Now, I think this is just one of the important themes to t- keep in mind whenever we're talking about uh, courts, uh, judicial courts, uh, from the Torah's perspective. We know the Torah, right? The Torah is given to us by God through Moshe. What's interesting about the idea of courts is that these are humans and fallible humans that are entrusted with meeting out God's will. And I think this is a broad theme of all of Torah. We have a heavenly Torah, but we also have, so to speak, an, a earth-based Torah. The Torah came from the heavenly realms, but now it's in our hands. And because it's in our hands, and God, so to speak, is going to withdraw and say, okay, you, you're on your own now. You have a Torah, don't mess it up. That allows for the idea of judges and many of the other themes that we're going to see in the Parsha. So the first thing that begins with is, okay, what kind, of ju- what kind of justice do we want? What kind of system do we want? Do we want to have cronyism that you kind of bribe the judge and he helped? No, of course not. We want to have justice. Well, what's the problem with that? Uh, you shall not pervert judgment. Uh, don't accept any bribes. The bribes will deviate or blind the eyes of the wise. You have to pursue righteousness. So, so that's the first thing we see in the Parsha. Now, kind of for us, you know, we're not judges. So how is this relevant uh, to us? So there's one theme, one idea that's always a very common idea that's brought up at the beginning of this week's Parsha. Uh, it's, it's talking to us as individuals. It's directing to us. You, you shall make for yourself judges and enforcers. A judge is someone who, who assigns the ruling and the enforcer is the infrastructure that meets it out. 
but it's talking to us. And the idea is, is that each one of us, we have to develop for ourselves a system of, uh, of justice for ourselves. We have to find a judgment and we have to find enforcement. The only way for us, you should place for yourself, the only way for us to assure that we don't go astray and that we live our life to the max, especially in light of the fact that we have all this conflict. We have all these forces that are trying to push us away from the path leading towards greatness and, 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 and righteousness. We have to create for ourselves, uh, to a system of a judicial oversight. And, uh, the sages have told us that when it talks about you should place judge, uh, judges in your gates. So Rashi tells us it means your cities, but it literally means means your gates. And what, and the sages have kind of said homiletically that each one of us has gates. We have a mouth, right? And the mouth is kind of this uh, crossover point where we have stuff that are inside and then the mouth is the gate and then we can let things out to the world. And that's a, a juncture. That, that's a nexus where a lot of good things can happen, a lot of bad things can happen. You could say words that change the world positively. You could inspire. You could uh, encourage. You could support. You could say nice things. You compliment. Like, it's a very powerful tool. On the other hand, we, as we all know, it's, it's, it could be very harmful. You could use your words uh, to say bad things, to say hurtful things, to say things that you'll regret. And who decides what goes through the gates? Well, we decide. And we're told the Torah right here that you have a gate, and this is a, a, a portal where you have to ensure that there's justice at this crossroads. Similarly, we're told that your ears, what you hear influences you, what you see, of course, influences you. And I think it's a, it's just an, a, a theme that we see again and again, especially when we talk about the laws of speech. Uh, after all, speech is what defines a man. Man, we mean as mankind. Our sages tell us that speech is a microcosm of the human at large. A human, of course, has a body. But it also ha- a human has a soul. Uh, there's the physical element, the the ephemeral part of us, and then there's the permanent, the spiritual element of us, and they're fused together. And then we have some parts of us that are much more physical, and other parts of us that are much more spiritual. Like we think about our our thoughts, like or, or consciousness. Consciousness is very hard to capture uh, in lab. Where does the consciousness lie? It's a very hard thing to try, kind of pinpoint. It's much more spiritual. And we have parts of us that are much more physical. And then we have speech, which is a fusion of the two. It's in the way we use it, it's a uniquely human phenomenon. Uh, also, it's it does utilize both aspects of who we are. It's There are physical components to it. You need to have a mouth and guttural and your throat and your tongue and all that to create sounds. But what is sound? You can't see it. It's not tangible. It's not palpable. Once I say it, it's gone. Unless, of course, it's recorded and uploaded as a podcast. What is it? You know, it's, it has a spiritual element of it as well. So speech is who you are, right? If you look all the way back in Genesis – which we are much closer to next year's rendition of than this past year's, uh, when man is created, so the Unculus, Unculus is the oldest translation of the Torah, was done at the end of the first century of the Common Era. 
by a Roman convert by the name of Uncles. He was the nephew of the Emperor Nero. And at the 90s, not the 1990s, but the actual 90s, uh, he, uh, under the stewardship of the greatest rabbis of the time, he wrote a translation of the Torah into Aramaic. And it's not a literal translation. It also ha- it has explanation. So when it talks about uh, man, man was created, uh, and man became a living being, says Unculus, man became a speaking being. At the fusion of body and soul, what changes is the fact that now there is speech. And therefore, uh, our humanity, if, if our humanity is defined in our speech, here we're told, of course, in a literal sense, it means to establish courts and have a judicial process and judicial infrastructure. But on a, on, on a personal level, we can take a lesson from this to um, create for ourselves boundaries and judges on our gates. I, uh, my grandfather, uh, in one of his books, he writes about his teacher, uh, the great Rabbi Yerucham Levavitz, uh, who died in 1936, and uh, he was a great Musser master. And the Musser people are obsessed with this idea of character perfection and ethical refinement and creating a catalog of character and having a keen awareness of what motivates you and where you need to focus your attention, where you need to improve and where you need to amplify your strengths. But uh, what he, what they found in his writings, my grandfather's teacher's writings, after he passed, was a little note that he wrote for himself as a teenager. And in that little note, it said that every day you have to do five things against your base will, against your whims. And this is creating a challenge for himself, right? Uh, What guides us? Who dis- who's at the reins of our life? Who decides how we behave? Depends. Right? If we just go on autopilot, then there's all these little whims and whimsicals that are always telling us what to do. To have willpower to uh, create a reality where your intellect and your reason and your logic dictates and guides your world, you have to first unseat the incumbent and the incumbent is the whimsicals and therefore he wrote every day you have to have five things against your whims five things five things that you, you just want to do not because you thought about it because it made sense you just you just want to do it because you just want to do it because you that's just what you're programmed to do and then he said if you don't do it every one of these five if you, unless you don't only do it four times you got to pay a penalty and every one of the five times that you did not fulfill you got to pay a penalty and I think that's an example of not just coming up with a strategy and a plan to create your path to perfection, so to speak, the judge's aspect. You also have to have the enforcing aspect. You have to have some enforcing mechanism. And I think broadly speaking, you know, in any area of life that we want to change, if it's worthwhile change, it's difficult. And if it's difficult, it's less likely to be successful. If it's not difficult, it's probably not that much change. And the, those, those two parallel each other. How, how great the change is and how much of an impact it'll have in your life and how difficult it'll be to achieve that. And you may have some grandiose plans of how you want to change yourself or even change the world. But if you don't have an enforcement mechanism, it's likely going to falter once you hit the 
uh, headwinds that you invariably will face. So if it's a good friend, if it's a penalty system, if it's uh, um, I don't know whatever whatever you whatever works for you to make sure that this uh, venture will be successful, and uh, hopefully it will. Now we're told as well that the judges cannot accept bribery. If they accept bribery of any sort, they are disqualified. And the Talmud discusses even cases where someone, uh, one of the litigants, uh, went over to the judge and says, oh, I really liked you. I love the article you wrote. Right? Automatically, they're validated. Right? Even something as as little as a compliment or a gift of, of the – lend them a cigarette. Uh, maybe that's not a good example, but give them a ride. I don't know. Uh, anything, any benefit that you do from someone else, uh, and we know this as the law of reciprocity. When someone does something good for you, it creates a, a, a need that is so fundamental to give back, uh, which is why, as an aside, uh, there's a great book called Influence uh, – by this uh, doctor who studied how to influence people, one of the things is is that you create reciprocity. First, give something, no matter how small it is, but that automatically creates it creates a debt that they feel morally obligated to fulfill, even if that's much greater. Uh, and uh, here we're told you cannot take bribe. If you do, you're invalidated. And what if someone's a great rabbi and he's a great scholar and he's a great sage and he has great character? And someone gives him a tiny minuscule gift. Allah is that he's invalidated. Why is he invalidated? So look what the verse says. We're told in the verse, for the bribe will blind the eyes of the wise. It's almost as if the Torah is declaring this is fixed. If there is bribery, God is declaring even the wise, indeed they are wise, but they are now blind. And that, of course, is terrifying because we don't like to think of ourselves as being influenced by anything. We, we like to think that we came to our conclusions. And here we're told, even if someone is very wise, indeed, the Torah is declaring they are wise, yet if they have bribe, bribery, uh, that will um, blind them and will deviate or make the words crooked. I think there's a, a very powerful way of kind of actualizing this idea in in our life. Um, the notion that bribery corrupts everyone, I think it's a, just a, a scary thought, but also I think it's it, it illuminates one of the questions that I think I have, maybe other people have it as well. You know, we talk about faith, right? Faith, of course, is uh, the great challenge of, of life. We're thrown into the world and uh, the artist, so to speak, who drew our landscape, who... who, who uh, embroidered our tapestry is invisible. And one of the definitions of God, according to the Talmud, is that row of Anunira. He sees but is unseen. So what we perceive as reality, uh, what we can interact with, uh, that there's a limitation we can't see God. Uh, so and that's the challenge. Are we going to accept it or not? So question, is faith in God, just basic faith. Is that a simple thing or is that a complex thing? Is is theology, the notion of a intelligent creator of our world, is that something that is a simple idea or is that a very complex idea? So I think we could see it both ways. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we could kind of – we could make it very, very complex. And I'm sure there's probably hundreds of thousands of books written on theology and, and all the philosophical questions of it. But listen to what the Medrash says. The Medrash tells us that Rabbi Akiva, the great rabbi of the first and second century, 
uh, he was having a debate or had an interaction with a heretic. And the heretic asks the great Rabbi Tiva, who created the world? And Rabbi Tiva responds, well, the Almighty created the world. He says, so he says to Rabbi Tiva, prove it to me. How do, how do you prove that to me? So he responds by pointing at the person's shirt. It says, who created that shirt? The tailor. Prove it to me. That's the, that, that's the end of the interaction. <laughs> and now what, what that means is that he was not telling him some grandiose, uh, 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 empirical, theological argument, uh, invoking all the great philosophers and making it complex. He's simplified. Of course, Rabkiva was a, was a, was a, if you read the Talmud, it's very clear he's a great genius and was able to understand complexity at a very high level. But what he's telling us is that at its root, it's very simple. It's a very simple idea. You can make it more complex if you want, and probably maybe there's even room for that. But at the root, there's a simple idea, right? Something that is created has, and it's intelligent, and it has. If you know, if there's a garment that has sleeves where arms belong, well, obviously there was some thought put into making that. And you have a garment, and everyone here is wearing garments, and then no one with the right mind would claim that any of these things evolved spontaneously even over trillions of years, much less only billions, everyone would agree to that. And that's simple. And no, no child would disagree with it. Yet a world that is infinitely more complex and everything works with such precision and everything's so wonderful, uh, how could people even claim just on the, using the simple logic that it came on its own? And, that, that's, and that's what Robert Kiva is telling him. And it puzzles me, well, why do people get it? And ironically, the people that are most capable of understanding this basic simple truism are the ones that are most likely to not understand it. Simple logic that Rekiva is presenting, that's 2,000-year-old logic. I think the logic probably is even strengthened now, now that we know how much more complex. Like, he didn't know about the double helix structure of the DNA or even DNA at all. The fact that there's three billion pairs of DNA in each one of our cells. That's incredible blueprint of, of, of complex, uh, complex systems. One cell, like one cell is enough. It's, that will be enough. That's it. Done. End of story, right? Uh, obviously, no one would question the garment logic. Why would someone question the cell logic? Or, I don't know, the fingers that bend logic, right? There's a lot of logic to, to, to go there, and yet people don't get it. How is that possible? Perhaps... We could say that the answer is lies over here, right? We have to make judgment calls. We have to decide what uh, we believe and how that believe, uh, that those beliefs guide our behavior. And here we're told we have to be, we have to be judges essentially. And we're told you to be the most brilliant judge in the world. If you're bribed, so to speak, if you have a horse in the race, if you have some skin in the game, that's it. You, you're, you're blind. But I'm brilliant. doesn't matter. You're brilliant, but you're blind. Right? If you're not pursuing truth and if you're not resisting the bribery, it's very likely that even things that are very simple will be hard for you to grasp. What could be a greater bribe than the fact that the implications of an intelligent creator are very grave? The fact that if is if this is true that there is an intelligent creator, that sends a ripple. A second and third and fourth order effects of that are terrifying, and we're all bribed. 
we all don't want to feel like our actions, even maybe the most minute actions, have tremendous consequences and everything matters and our life really matters and we have to be very careful how we behave. We don't want to live like that. So we're bribed. If you're bribed, you're blind. If you're blind, maybe even things that are very evident logically are repelled because of those um, blind spots. Just an idea that uh, is brought up over here. Um, so we get some more laws about idolatry, not to make any idolatry, not to have any um, uh, altars or pillars, and not to bring the sacrifice to God that has a blemish. Uh, what happens when someone does do idolatry? And then verse 8, a very, very important series of verses to understand what we would call today um, the role of the rabbis or rabbinic authority. We talk about, we know in um, back in the book of Numbers, uh, Moshe, he organized the first Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the name of the Supreme Court of Judaism. It's not nine justices, it's 71 justices. That's all the way back in... Uh, in the book of Numbers, and we know that body was was finally disbanded in the year 359 of the Common Era. So it's, it was around for almost 1,700 years, which is an astonishing run for anybody. Uh, but what is their role? And what's, what's their role and what is their jurisdiction? So the verse here tells us, uh, when you don't know any matter between two bloods, between two judgments, between uh, two plagues. So there's, there's a question, and the answer is not clear. And you have a disagreement, and you're in your local city, and you have a, a question that maybe is not so obvious, uh, and you go to one of the scholars, and he tells you one answer. You go to the second scholar, he gives you a different answer. You don't know what the truth is. So what, what, is, what, what should you do? You shall rise up. And ascend to the place that Hashem your God shall choose. Go to the temple. And you come to the Kohanim, the Levites, the judges who are in that day. Whoever is part of the judicial system at the time. And you shall inquire. And they will tell you the word of judgment. You listen to them. And you shall do according to the word that they will tell you. From that place that Hashem will choose. And be careful to follow whatever they teach you. And then it tells you a very important sentence here. According to the teaching that they will teach you and according to the judgment that they will say to you, you shall do, you shall not deviate from the word that they will tell you right or left. So you have a question. You don't know the answer. You have you hear conflicting opinions. You go to the Sanhedrin and whatever they say, you follow. And don't deviate not right and not left. Okay, Rabbi, is the reason that the Sanhedrin was disbanded, is it because there's no temple? It could only be the temple? No, the, tem- the, the Sanhedrin continued for almost 300 years after the temple was destroyed. But they had to go underground. So the history of Sanhedrin is very fascinating. But um, if there is a temple, the Sanhedrin has to be in the temple. If there's no temple, the Sanhedrin is wherever it is. And we know that they travel from various places. Uh, when the, Roman, the Romans allow the Sanhedrin to exist after the temple is destroyed, and that's the famous story of Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai and his negotiation with Vespasian, um, where he managed to uh, finagle an instruction that... Sanhedrin will not be destroyed, and they move to Yavne, and then they move to various different places, but uh, they had to keep a very low profile. 
And finally, uh, for several times, they were they were split up. There wasn't a quorum. Uh, so half the Sanhedrin went to one place, half the Sanhedrin went to a different place. And over the next ensuing 300 years, at various times they were together, at various times they were separated, but they were ultimately disbanded uh, due to various reasons in the, the 350s. Now, as to whether or not we can make a Sanhedrin today, it's like one of the great was one of the great uh, dilemmas because we need to have a Sanhedrin. But the problem is, is that in order to have a Sanhedrin, you have to have smicha. What is smicha? Smicha means where you made someone into, uh, it's a rabbinic ordination. But not the rabbinic ordination that we have today, but the rabbinic ordination that comes all the way from Moshe. So Moshe, we saw a few weeks ago, Moshe, he placed his hands upon Joshua and he coronated him, so to speak, as, the, as his successor. And then Joshua... Uh, he gave over this, and this came, you know, this went on and on for generations until the Romans disbanded it. The Romans, uh, famously, Talmud tells us, they uh, made a rule: whoever gives smicha, whoever receives smicha, and the city in which the smicha is conferred, all that can be killed and destroyed. So, because the institution of smicha was ended, therefore Sanhedrin itself did not have the people to populate the Sanhedrin with. Well, there is a line in Rambam where Rambam says if all the rabbis of Israel agree to reinstitute the the uh, the system of smicha, then it's done. Good luck getting all the rabbis of Israel to agree on anything. <laughs> but uh, in the 16th century, they tried to do it in Israel, in Tzfat, in northern Israel. And the great Rabbi Joseph Cairo, who wrote the Code of Jewish Law, Shulchan Aruch, he was one of the three people that received smicha. But then the rabbis in Jerusalem said, we don't agree, and they stopped it, and there's only three people that got it. But yeah, there were, there were, there were plans, and there still are plans, to reestablish smicha and reinstitute the Sanhedrin. The people that are trying to do it are twofold. The ones that are trying to do it Overtly, and one trying to do it covertly. The ones that are doing it overtly, those guys are charlatans. The ones trying to do it covertly, that's where it gets interesting. This has a lot of messianic undertones. This whole discussion um, in the in, in the in the late 1950s, there was a series of letters between Ben Gurion, who was the prime minister of Israel at the time, and the chief rabbi, Rabbi Herzog, um, whose grandson, by the way, was the head of the Labor Party till recently, um, but. Regarding all these questions, now that we have a state of Israel and more Jews are coming to Israel, how does it fit in? What are the halachic ramifications of this new reality? And kind of where can we push the envelope further? There's this whole um, going on to Temple Mount, right? Are we allowed to go on Temple Mount or not? And what are the halachic implications of that? Uh, can we just go and take a bulldozer and start rebuilding their temple? Right? These are these are all uh, questions related to this uh, to this uh, discipline. Uh, but one of those questions would be, how do we get a Sanhedrin back in tow? Uh, how, how do we reinstitute smicha? Uh, under what conditions will it be allowed? Under what conditions will it be legitimate? Uh, we, and the only thing we really have to go on is this Rambam, is this statement in Maimonides. Um, the Talmud is moot about what would happen in a world where smicha would go extinct and how do you bring it back? Because it has to exist on this line of direct teacher to student. And even in the Talmudic times, if you'll notice, whenever it talks about a rabbi in Talmudic times, 
if that rabbi is in Israel, we'll call him rabbi. If the rabbi is in Babylon, we'll call him rav. And the difference is because to be called rabbi, you have to have smicha. And smicha existed only in Israel at the time, but not in Babylon. But now it's used interchangeably because neither of them are referring to the real smicha. The members of the Sanhedrin have to be total clarity in all of Torah. Just that's the basics. Uh, but even uh, we're told, for example, the Sanhedrin is not allowed to hear testimony uh, or argumentation through a translator. So suppose someone comes from France or someone comes from, uh, I don't know, Latin America and they only speak Spanish or they only speak French. They don't speak through a translator. So any language that any Jew anywhere in the world speaks, the members of the Sanhedrin have to be fluent in that language. So these people have to know upwards of 10 languages to be able to hear directly from the people involved and not through a translator. Uh, these had to be people that were um, healthy and that had children because the Talmud says if they don't have children, maybe they won't be as uh, eager to try to find to be, – they won't be as merciful. They won't be as, as, akin, as used to mercy. Uh, these were uh, – there was a story, interesting, uh, with a great Rabbi Moshe Feinstein who died in 1985. Uh, he was someone of this caliber, someone – who you read the stories about him, it's unbelievable. But uh, total clarity in all of Torah. And the story goes that he was having a pacemaker installed. He died when he was 95 years old. And um, he was very concerned that the installation of the pacemaker would invalidate him for being in the Sanhedrin. He was worried, what if they reestablish the Sanhedrin and he would be uh, disqualified as a candidate because the members of the Sanhedrin cannot have any blemishes. So what exactly are they doing to make sure that it does not disqualify him from being a member? Um, but do we have 70 of those people? 71 would need. Um, I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> it's not just you bring them a question to the, to the higher court. It's like, if you remember back in Exodus, uh, Moshe tells them, the simple questions, you ask your local rabbi and there's no question about it. The more complex and nuanced questions, that's when you need to go to the Supreme Court, right? Uh, you don't want to bring a traffic ticket to the Supreme Court because any other court can handle that. If that's just unknown, that's when it comes to them. Okay, so so, so here, here's, I think, an important point. Um, are these humans, are they infallible? Does anyone, does anyone claim that these Sanhedrin are infallible? No. No, no one, no one they're still humans, so what happens uh, if they make a mistake? What happens then? That, 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 that's, a, that's a great question. There's always an appeals process. Okay. Um, the only time there's no appeals process in any Jewish court is if either it's a case of capital punishment and the person is found innocent. Once they're found innocent, then they can never be brought back to be uh, judged on that or to be tried on that. Once someone's acquitted for a capital punishment case, they can never be tried for that capital punishment case. However, the opposite would be true. If they're found guilty, they can appeal for innocence. Of course, the appeal is based upon new evidence or new insight. Another case uh, where appeal would not be possible is if there is uh, a concern of uh, chicanery, that we're worried that uh, one of the litigants is doing something um, improper. Uh, so, for example, if the litigant testifies 
that he has no more evidence. I this is all the evidence I got. Oh, this is all the witnesses that I have. And then, oh, he's losing. Oh, actually, I remember. Uh, I may have someone. No, that's obviously that appears to the court as being something, um, uh, as being some skullduggery. And therefore, they would invalidate that. They can't bring an appeal when it's obvious that there's something fishy going on over here. Now, so so what happens when there's a mistake? This is an important question. Look, there's a very um, iconic Rashi here in verse number 11. Um, Rashi uh, is going on the on the verse where it says, Don't deviate from the word, from the matter they instruct you now, right, not left. It says Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, Even if they tell you that right is left, and left is right, you cannot deviate from their words. So this Rashi, of course, is problematic. What does it mean? If they tell you right is left and left is right, they're obviously wrong. And therefore, why should you follow them? Maybe the Sanhedrin is fallible. They're still humans. Maybe they're very talented, very capable, very righteous people, but they could still make a mistake. Maybe. Well, that, that, that seems like it's possible. It says Rashi, you still follow them even when they make a mistake. So what's, what's the idea? Behind it. So first of all, there's one explanation of Rashi that does not mean to follow them when they're wrong. Uh, we know that this is my right side, but it's actually, if you're facing me, it's your left side. So there are, have been those that try to interpret Rashi. Not that Rashi is trying to tell you that, oh, follow the Sanhedrin when they tell you something which is patently wrong. Rather, follow them when they tell you you're heading in the wrong direction. Your right is your left and your left is your right because you're facing the wrong direction. Even if the implications of the judgment of the Sanhedrin is that your whole life path is wrong, you have to turn around and head the opposite direction. Of course, it's very hard to bear. And if I tell you that your right is left and your left is right, what I mean is you're heading the wrong direction. You got to turn around. And not just in a small area of your, in a facet, an aspect of your life, your entire life, you have to turn it over. Well, that's hard to bear. Says, says the Torah, don't deviate right or left. Even if you right or left, you got to turn around. That's one interpretation of Rashi. But on a simple level, what Rashi is telling us and what the Talmud is telling us is even when they make a mistake, you got to follow them. And the question is, of course, why? And there's a very famous um, line here in the Chinuch. We mentioned the Chinuch before that uh, he is the one who uh, – his book goes through all the 613 mitzvot in the order in which they appear in the Torah – and gives us an insight, understanding behind each mitzvah. And he's talking about uh, what we would call today judicial infallibility or Sanhedrin infallibility. What does this mean when they tell you uh, to do something that's wrong? As if to say, I'm quoting from him, Even if they are erring in the matter, in one matter out of many, it's still proper for us to not question them. Rather, to do as their mistake. And it's better for us to bear one mistake, but everyone is following the same Judaism, everyone's following the same Torah. However, that, that's better than everyone choosing which way they want to observe according to their own mind. And therefore, they are what's going to keep the Jewish people united. And we want to be one nation and following one Torah. And if it's up to the interpretation of every individual who can concoct whatever they want out of their own mind, that creates a, uh, a fractions and a factions and sectarianism once the Jewish people, and that destroys the nation. It's better to follow what the Sanhedrin says, even in the once in a million case where they tell you right is left, left is right. They, made a, they actually make a mistake. It's a legitimate mistake. It's better to follow them because uh, 
doing that will ensure that our nation will remain uh, united. And there is uh, th- this is of course uh, is a hard idea to, to bear. The fact that you're going to deliberately follow what is wrong, that's of course hard to understand. So let's follow. Let's look for. I have two examples, and these are very famous uh, episodes in the Talmud, and of course they're very troubling episodes, as you will see. Uh, but it does demonstrate a point. Uh, historically speaking, this is after the temple's destroyed. The Sanhedrin moves to a city called Yavne, and Rabban Gamliel, he's the Nasi, he is the head of the Sanhedrin, he is, was known as the president, he's a direct descendant of Hillel, and uh, there's two episodes with him, uh, relating to him, where um, something very bizarre happens. Uh, the first one is the famous serpentine oven of Baba Metzia, page 59b. Really, it starts on A, but it goes to B. Story goes, there was a debate brought before the Sanhedrin regarding the uh, kosher status of a certain oven. Now, we know that there are various laws of purity and impurity that relate to items, to vessels. We've seen it many times throughout the Torah. Uh, There was a question regarding a certain oven that was broken and got fixed. Does it have the status of purity or not? Is it pure or is it impure? This is, of course, a very exotic case. It's not, it's not something you encounter in everyday life. It was a, a oven that was in the shape of a snake. And there was a debate brought before the Sanhedrin regarding is it pure or is it impure. Now, at the time, the Sanhedrin was partially underground. Uh, some of them were elsewhere and some of them were in Yavne and they did not have the full 71-member body. And there were two sides of the argument on one side was Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer was the greatest halachic authority and mind of the time, of his era. Uh, he was a teacher, for example, of Rabbi Akiva. And he held, his position was that it was pure. The consensus of the Sanhedrin was that it was not pure. And this ticked off a, a dramatic standoff. And Rabbi Eliezer begins to make proclamations. And he says, if I am right, he brings everyone outside, let this tree uproot itself and plant itself 100 yards uh, apace. And as he says that, everyone's watching, the tree uproots itself and magically implants itself uh, down the road. And they say to him, sorry, that's not a proof. The Torah is not in the heavens. That doesn't prove anything. We follow the majority. And he says, okay, he p- points to the river, and the river's flowing one direction. If I'm right, let the river flow the opposite direction. Miraculously, the river starts flowing the opposite direction. They're not impressed at all. He says, well, if I'm right, let the walls of the, of the House of Scholarship cave in. The walls start to cave in. And then the other rabbi says, well, don't stop it. And it, 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 it remained kind of midair, kind of on a diagonal. And finally, he says, if I'm right, let heavens testify. Everyone hears a booming prophetic voice. Don't mess with Rabbi Eliezer. He's the greatest rabbi at the time. He's right. They say to him, sorry, the Torah's not in the heavens, which is a verse later on in Deuteronomy. Loba Shemaim means not in the heavens. No matter what you say, doesn't matter. The Torah's here, Torah's ours. We're in charge of adjudicating it. And we say that our uh, majority rules determines that it's impure, no proofs in the world will move us from this position. 
And the end of the story is a little bit tragic because Rabbi Gamaliel, who incidentally happened to be Rabbi Eliezer's brother-in-law, Rabbi Eliezer was married to Rabbi Gamaliel's sister, uh, he made a rule excommunicating Rabbi Eliezer. So imagine the greatest rabbi at the time is excommunicated by all his peers. All his rulings are invalidated. No one's allowed to talk to him. No one's allowed to bring him halakha queries. No one's allowed to sit within four uh, within four cubits of him. And there's a whole story of, of how they broke the news to him. And uh, remember, this is the greatest rabbi at the time. And uh, the end of the story was is that Rabbi Eliezer's wife, she's right torn between her husband and her brother. And they have this very public uh, uh, battle. So every day when he was praying, she would make sure that he doesn't say a certain prayer. There's a certain prayer which is called Tachnon or Nefila Sapaim, where someone falls on their head. And it's a prayer of anguish, of, of sadness, where someone calls out to God. They're falling on their faces, it's called. And she made sure every day he wouldn't say that prayer. Because she was worried if he would call out to God, her brother would die. And then there was one day that she was convinced there was Rosh Chodesh. She thought it was Rosh Chodesh, that anyhow you don't say Tachanun. That prayer, you don't say anyhow. So she didn't mind stopping him. Turns out it wasn't Rosh Chodesh. He said it, and her brother died. That's the story. And uh, ultimately, it was only after Rabbi Eliezer died that they rescinded this excommunication. Anyway, it's a very sad story. Uh, but the question is, what's the meaning behind it? Uh, how, how is it possible that uh, someone who, it seems like he's right, and he brings all this proof, and he's the greatest rabbi, but the Sanhedrin overrules him. And here is the crux of the idea. The Torah is not in the heavens. What this means is, yes, we've got a heavenly Torah, but now it's ours. And we're told in the Torah how it's adjudicated. And the way it's adjudicated, you go to Sanhedrin, you have a vote, majority rules, that is Torah. I don't care the fact that in some heavenly realms, if Rabbi Eliezer is able to conjure all these proofs from the heavens that he's right, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they say in the heavens. It's almost as if the Torah is now in our hands and we're told that we have to follow these processes in this framework and this structure. And therefore, yes, we may be wrong in the kind of higher realms in the cosmos. If you ask God, we're wrong, it doesn't matter when I ask him God. Which is, of course, an astonishing thing. But that is what the Torah is telling us. The Torah is telling us, yes, we have a godly Torah, but now it's an earthly, earth-based Torah. And therefore, we have to follow the guidelines that the Almighty gave us. And he said, I want, you're entrusted in adjudicating it. How do you do it? With a Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin rules, you follow the majority. Now, it's interesting, just to bring us full circle, how did Rabbi Eliezer not know that? Of course, he knew that more than anyone else. So why did he not capitulate to all this pressure that was mounting? And the answer is because this was in Yavne, and the Sanhedrin did not have a, a sufficient quorum. And Rabbi Eliezer believed that because there weren't 71 members, this rule of Deuteronomy doesn't apply. It's only when the entire body of 71 rabbis, judges, are there, only then does it apply. Robert Gamaliel, he held that no, because this is the Sanhedrin, and we only have, I don't know, 35 members, but we still have enough to have the status of the Sanhedrin, and therefore our majority is binding. And uh, and that, of course, is a very problematic story. It's a very sad story. Uh, but it does teach us a very powerful lesson that, yes, Sanhedrin may be wrong on a kind of a higher realm, but 
as a practical matter, we're told to follow what they say, even if they are wrong. They tell you right, left, left, right doesn't matter. They tell you that this serpentine oven is not pure. Right? It doesn't matter. We follow what they say. That, so to speak, becomes the law. Now, there's another story uh, with Rabbi Gamaliel as well, this time not with Rabbi Eliezer, but with Rabbi Eliezer's uh, colleague, Rabbi Yehoshua. If you look at the uh, pedigree of Rabbi, of Rabbi Akiva, his two teachers, well, he had several teachers, but two of his main teachers, one was Rabbi Eliezer and one was Rabbi Yehoshua, and they were, uh, they were colleagues. So the story goes that there was, again, another case brought before the Sanhedrin, this time relating to a new month. Uh, there, there was a question regarding which day was the new month. We know that Jewish calendar follows a sole year, but a lunar month, which creates all kinds of astronomical, literally, problems. And, and the, every lunar month is 29 days and 12 hours and 44 minutes and three and change seconds, which means that essentially every new month begins 29 and a half days after the, pr- the previous one. So if it's 29 and a half days, is it, is it a 29-day month or a 30-day month? We can't start a new month in the middle of the day. So there's this whole body of law dealing with this problem, and that therefore some skew shorter. They're called uh, uh, they're, they're smaller months, the 29-day months, and some skew longer, the 30-day months. And how do you figure out which one it is? You have to go to the Sanhedrin. And you have to present them evidence, and it goes either short or long. By the way, just to come again full circle, fuller circle, uh, in 359, when the Sanhedrin was disbanded, one of the primary roles of the Sanhedrin was determining the new moon and the new month, and that guides the Jewish calendar. If we don't know what Rosh Chodesh is, when's Yom Kippur? When is Pesach? Is it on day 14 or day 15? How would you know? Right? So Hillel, this is Hillel II, not Hillel I. He was a great, 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 great grandson of the original Hillel. He devised a 247-year cycle, which is 13 rounds of 19 years apiece, in which he uh, organized all the months and all the years and all the leap years and created a fixed calendar that we follow until today. So even though we don't have a Sanhedrin, it's almost as if he, he, the, his Sanhedrin, in its last, so to speak, dying move, they made all the new months for all of eternity. Either way, back to the 70s. Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Gamaliel, they have someone who comes to court and he presents evidence for the new month, but it was very shaky evidence. He didn't see it so clearly. He saw it, I think it was, he saw it in the morning in the, in the, in the east, in the afternoon in the, in the west. It wasn't so clear whether this was admissible. And Rabbi Yehoshua believed it was not admissible. Therefore, day 30 is of the previous month, and day 31 is the first of the next month. Rabbi Gamliel, he accepted it. So therefore, day 29 is day, last day of the preceding month, and day 30 is the first day of the next month. Problem was, this is the month of Tishrei. So when is Yom Kippur? Is it day 40, going back to the previous month, or day 41? They had this whole argument. And Rabbi Gamliel tells him, okay, this is, the, this is the halacha, right? Day 30 is the first day of the new month. And therefore, Yom Kippur is 10 days later. Now, Rabbi Yeshua, he didn't agree with that. 
he believed it was 11 days later. So what happened? So Gamaliel tells him, I want you to show up on Yom Kippur, the day that you think is Yom Kippur, which is the day after I think is Yom Kippur. Come to me with your staff and with your money pouch. I command you to come and show up to me with your staff and your money pouch. And he was gravely distressed. Rabbi Gamaliel is forcing him to transgress uh, the laws of Yom Kippur, the most you know, sacred day of the year. He's very distressed and he had a whole bunch of meetings. Rabbi Akiva told him, doesn't matter, even if he made a mistake. Halacha is that the Almighty tells us when, whenever Sanhedrin decides, even if they're wrong, whenever they decide is the new month, that's the new month. And he shows up to him on Yom Kippur with the staff and with the money pouch. And Ramil stands up for him and he kisses him on his forehead. Welcome, my student and my teacher, my student, my teacher because you're a greater Torah scholar than me, but my student because you accepted my word. Again, we see the idea that based upon this section, there's other sections as well, but primarily this section, what does the Almighty tell us? You should follow what they tell you and you should guard it. You should not deviate from it, not right, not left. Moreover, verse 12 tells us anyone who does deviate from it, that is indeed even a possibility for being a capital offense. So uh, just, again, this shows us that there is justification for the idea that the rabbis, namely the Sanhedrin, have authority all the way back from the Torah. It's, it's as if the written Torah itself testifies that that the um, jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin is very vast. Okay. Right. Next law is the law of a king. We're told, you go to Israel, you'll say you want a king. There are special laws relating to the king. First of all, a king has to be a, a Jew. He can appoint a foreign ruler. And there are uh, certain mitzvahs that are relevant to a king. Number one, he cannot have too many horses because that may lead him to return the nation to Egypt. He cannot have too many wives because they may leave him astray. cannot have too much money. Um, Talmud describes what are the limitations. Not too many wives, only 18. Right, that should be enough. Um, not uh, too many horses, uh, just enough for his chariot, etc. Now, there's an interesting uh, Talmudic statement regarding this law. We know... Uh, King Solomon, he had a thousand wives. And he had many, 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 many horses. And we're told here, it's one of the unique things in the Torah, we're told the reason behind the mitzvah. Generally, the, the Torah is moot upon the reason behind the mitzvah. Here we're told, can I have too many wives? They may lead him astray. Can I have too many horses? They may go back to Egypt. Says the Talmud, why were mitzvahs generally not told to the nation? The, the reason, why were the reasons generally not told? Because here, the mitzvahs were told, but King Solomon, one of the giants, he made a huge mistake, right? King Solomon said, well, I'll marry as many women as, as I want, a thousand women, but they won't lead me astray. And in the end, they did lead me astray. I'll have as many horses as I want, and indeed, they will not lead me astray. But the truth was that they did lead them back to Egypt. Uh, it's interesting, just an idea that uh, even King Solomon uh, – when the Torah says, don't do something, this is what will happen, uh, no matter how clever you may be, and you say, well, the reason doesn't apply, uh, we see that if King Solomon, if he faltered, um, of course, who's to say that we won't make the same mistake? A king is required to have two Torah strolls with him, one with him at all times, one that he leaves in the temple or in his palaces. 
Uh, why? So that uh, verse 20, so his heart but not become haughty over his brethren, even though he's the king, and he has to understand what his responsibility is. He cannot lord over his brethren and not uh, reject the Torah. Uh, chapter 18 talks about the Levites and the various uh, mitzvos regards to, regarding to charity given to the Levites. Uh, the Levites were not given a portion of the land, and they're the spiritual leaders of the nation, and therefore we're told to give charity to them because they are fulfilling a spiritual uh, need for the nation. We have to make sure that their physical needs are met as well. There's a very famous teaching in the, Tal- in the Rambam where Maimonides outlines the role and responsibility and benefits of the Levites. They're the ones who are the teachers, they're the educators, they're the spiritual leaders, and therefore it's a mitzvah for the Israelites to help support their physical needs. And then he adds one of the very one of the most famous lines in all of Rambam: "The low shaved lady Bavad, and not the tribe of Levite alone, rather any human from the whole world who is inspired and understands, he wants to uh, designate himself to stand before God." to uh, worship God, to serve God, to teach the Torah. Uh, he beho- uh, Behold, he becomes holy, and God is his portion, and he'll merit to have his needs taken care of as well. The idea of a Levi, the idea of a Levite, is the fact that they are taking upon themselves spiritual responsibility, says the Almighty, I'm going to ensure that the physical needs will be met to ensure, to enable that the spiritual um, uh, the spiritual activities be fulfilled uh, with um, uh, with ease or with uh, comfort. Uh, we're told other laws regarding uh, prohibitions, uh, activities that are uh, abominable activities that were prevalent in the land of Israel. We're not we're told not allowed to do that. Child sacrifice, uh, verse ten. Don't practice divinations. Don't be a sorcerer. Don't be an animal charmer. Don't be a necromancer. Don't talk to dead people. These were uh, common practices in the land of Canaan. We're about to go. Into, we're about to go into the land. We cannot do that. Tamim You should be wholehearted with God. Don't try to figure out things that you're not supposed to figure out. Uh, next, we're told about false prophecies and vetting of prophets. Prophets. Moshe is telling the nation, you will have prophets in the future. If they are legitimate, you must follow them. If they're not, you have to kill them because a false prophet is a really bad thing. How do you know if someone's a real prophet or not? You have to vet them. How do you do that? You have to create all these tests uh, to determine if they are real. If someone gives a prophecy, a positive prophecy that is not true, even if it's off by five seconds or five minutes, uh, if the if the prophet says tomorrow it'll be a thunderstorm at 3.15 p.m. and it comes at 3.20, false prophet, you kill them. Cities of refuge, we already saw three cities of refuge. Moshe separate on the other side of the uh, of the Jordan. Now he's told to separate he's telling them you have to separate on uh, three on the other side. Uh, laws of a murderer, both a willing uh, a willful murder versus a, um, a a murder that kills accidentally. Those laws are told here as well. Prof, uh, uh, witnesses. What happens if you have a false witnesses? The halacha is if there are conspiring witnesses that are trying to bring about a uh, a ruling against someone and they're liars and we find out that they're liars uh, through additional 
witnesses that prove that they're liars, they get what they tried to cause. If they tried to cause a monetary penalty, they have to pay the same monetary penalty. If they tried to cause a capital punishment, they get the same capital punishment. And thus, we should weed out uh, the terrible notion of false profit, uh, false witnesses from our midst. Some more laws uh, regarding uh, war. What happens when you go out for war? Uh, chapter 20, when you go out for war, you have to first select who are going to be the soldiers. And the Torah outlines a very strange process of the, of uh, of making a draft. Uh, you don't look for the most capable physically. You look for the most capable spiritually. Well, how does that work? Anyone that either built a new home but didn't live in it or uh, planted a new vineyard but didn't wasn't able to shear it or someone – who got engaged but didn't get married, they're people who can't concentrate on the task at hand. Therefore, they're invalidated. But also, anyone who's fearful, says the Talmud, fearful of what? Fearful of sin. If anyone is concerned of any sin, that they're not spiritually cleansed to the degree that they could be part of a spiritual army, they are let off the hook. So only the only people you have left are those that are righteous. And says the Talmud, the reason why we have people who built houses or planted vineyards or got, or got engaged, why those people are gotten rid of uh, from the draft process is really to provide cover for those who are concerned with the sins that they have. The real people we don't want in the army are people that have sins. If you're going to be part of a spiritual army that's going to win miraculously, you have to make sure that you're worthy of such uh, of such treatment by God. And therefore, if you have sins, it might be a problem. It might be a hindrance in your ability to do your job in this army. Well, we don't want to embarrass those people. We don't say, oh, all sinners get out because people say, oh, I don't want a sinner. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, maybe I am, but I don't want to get up and walk out. Therefore, we provide them cover by saying, well, people who built new homes or people who planted new vineyards or people who got engaged, those people leave, oh, and sinners as well. And everyone who gets up, we could they could save face by saying that maybe they are one of the one of the others, one of the others. Thank you. Uh, next, how do you engage in war? So chapter uh, 20, verse 10 tells us when you approach a city to battle with it, first you provide peace overtures. If they accept peace, they're willing to become mm. subjects of this new nation and they're willing to pay taxes, then they're allowed to, to stay in peace and in harmony. However, if they go to war, you go to war against them and you destroy them. Uh, completely. Now, uh, interesting. Now we have the eclipse uh, mania. Uh, there's an interesting uh, midrash here that talks about peace in general. It talks about the fact it's a lot in peace and how important peace is. It says, interesting, about the sun and the moon. We know that uh, originally the sun and the moon were the same size. Moreover, just like the sun was a star that had its own power, its own light, the moon also had its own light. Now we know the moon is only reflecting the light of the sun. And the Talmud tells us, uh, the Midrash Midr tells us over here, how important is peace? Even in the celestial beings, even the sun and the moon, they were rivals, so to speak, and the moon was reduced, still the sun did, never gets to see the part of the moon that is darkened. We know the moon, half of it's always darkened, and half of it's always illuminated. The side's faith in the sun is always illuminated. So even though the sun and the moon, they were rivals, and the moon was diminished, still to promote peace, the sun never gets to see, so to speak, the part, the shameful side of the moon, the part that is not illuminated. Just a nice idea. 
Uh, and of course, concludes the Talmud that if God is worried about peace in the heavenly realms, in the celestial beings, where they don't have bad character and they're not as complicated as we are, how much more so in our world where there is competition and there is negative feelings and there is anger and there is envy, how much more so we should promote uh, peace over here as well. And even with our uh, most hardened enemies, there is a debate amongst the commentaries. Rashi, for example, says with Amalek, uh, you cannot offer peace to Amalek. Ramban and Rambam, they both argue. They say even Amalek, even this may be a supercharged word, but even the Nazis, what if they want peace and they genuinely want peace? Right? So Rashi would tell you, no, we don't accept peace with such people. The, 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 the mortal enemies of the Jews, Amalek, Nazis, you kill them. According to Ramban and, and, and Rambam, even for such uh, horrific people, you if if they are legitimate by accepting peace off, uh, offerings, then you would accept that. Uh, other laws regarding war, when you siege a city, you are not allowed to destroy any uh, fruit-bearing trees. Uh, we know a common battle tactic was, uh, the Romans did this, of course, um, to perfection. You surround a city, but you also cut down all the trees. And therefore, no one can escape the cities. And you're also trying to starve the city. Uh, they should lose all the resources. Allah is, if it's a fruit-bearing tree, you cannot destroy what gives life. And it's a very famous uh, line over here in, in verse 20. Sorry, verse 19. Ki ha'adam eats as a man is likened to a tree of the field. All right, man too. We have our roots and we have, what, what, we have fruits. We can give uh, life and vitality. We're similar to fruit trees. We should, we should not destroy them. A nice environmental uh, sensitivity here uh, coming from the Torah. The last law of this parsha is the law of the Egla Arufa, a very tragic instance where you find a dead body, a corpse in the middle of two cities. And why does someone die randomly? There's no uh, visible wounds. It wasn't like they were killed. Uh, it means that they weren't taken care of. And that is a blight against those cities, like if you see the underprivileged, those that are lacking, those that are hungry, those that are homeless, you have to take care of them. And if they just die because no one took care of them, then you're responsible. So what they do is they measure uh, the distance uh, from the corpse to the closest city. And the closest city and all the people and all the rabbis and all the elders and all the sages, they have to come out. And they have to do this whole process, and they have to try to impress upon the people such a thing is uh, is unconscionable. The fact that there, we could have one of our own that we don't take care of, that is something that we don't do. And they make this very public uh, display of prayer and of repentance uh, with some very uh, vivid uh, imagery and to make as well-known and to popularize and to and, – and uh, disseminate as widely as possible that such a thing happened and it's a terrible thing and it should hopefully never happen again. Thus concludes Parsha Shoftim. Next week, Parsha Zatiseitzeh, the Parsha with the most mitzvos in all of Torah. I look forward to seeing everyone there.